Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain star in a thriller about violence and corruption set in New York City in 1981, the most dangerous year in the city's history. Watch A Most Violent Year on Demand now. An aspiring novelist enters into a relationship with a married woman who can only see him in the evening hours. Watch 5 to 7 on demand while it's in theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And in this episode, Allison and I will dive into the gritty depths of Marvel's most recent multi-tendrilled invasion of the entertainment world, at least until the imminent arrival of Avengers Age of Ultron. That would be the new Daredevil series, the first in a set of superhero series Netflix has planned, all set in the ever-expanding Marvel Cinematic and now Marvel Cinetelematic universe. Yeah, it's a little awkward that way, I guess. Cinetelematic. Cinetelematic. So, yeah. Sounds like some invention from the 1940s that petered out. Right. The MCU, let's say. <laughs> All right. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And we were going to talk superhero movies, but then we realized an in-depth, detail-oriented, and really almost alienatingly geeky discussion of comic book movies has already been done. You can find it at twitter.com slash Matt Stinger. That's M-A-T-T-S-I-N-G-R. It's ongoing. Well, really, though, Matt and our friend and fellow critic Jordan Hoffman, who was filling in for me while I was away, did a delightful podcast on the topic of comic book movies around when the first Avengers arrived on Netflix. That's episode number 39 if you want to check it out. So instead of superheroes this time, we're going to take a cue from Daredevil's powers. He developed heightened other senses after losing his sight in an accident as a boy to look at some other movies featuring blind characters. Uh, But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand On Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, you're up this week. What are our picks? I'm under protest. I'm just not going to I'm I'm not even going to talk. You're refusing to recommend things. I actually think alienatingly geeky would be a great pull quote for the top <laughs> of my Twitter page. Can I use that? Do you Feel give me authorization? Please. Okay. Uh, just might, credit me, you know. I will. I will. I'm going to I might steal that. Alienatingly geeky. All right. Well, let's get to our picks. The first one 
is the new film from Tim Burton, and it's a film I actually liked quite a bit. It came out at the end of the year, and it was one of roughly 6,000 prestige biopics that were released in <laughs> December. I think it, it kind of got lost in the shuffle. It's, it's called Big Eyes. I thought it was a solid film, a, a better one, I would have argued, than some of the quote-unquote more important biopics that kind of swamped it out of theaters. Uh, it's it's kind of a spiritual sequel to Ed Wood. That's how I would look at it. Not only is it directed by Tim Burton, and it's written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. That was the same team that directed and wrote Ed Wood. But it is a film about a so-called bad artist, a supposedly bad artist. In this case, that's Walter Keene, a man who, at least according to the movie, helped really like pioneer the idea of mass art by making very cheap reproductions of his work, sort of a Warhol before, before Warhol figure, with one significant twist, which is not a spoiler since it's the whole plot of the movie. It's made clear right from the start. Actually, Walter Keene was not the creator of his fam famous paintings. His wife, Margaret Keene, was the artist. She was the one who painted everything while he took all the credit. He was sort of the front man of the operation. So it's this really interesting dynamic between Margaret Keene, who is this passionate artist. She feels these paintings very deeply. There are these uh, images of children with enormous eyes, hence the title. And then you also have Walter Keene, who's the huckster, who is able to make them very financially successful with his salesmanship, with his charm, but who steals all the glory and all the credit. You're gonna love this stuff. Why are their eyes so big? The eyes are the windows of the soul. That's why I paint them so big. I've always done it that way. Why are you lying? Sadly, people don't buy lady art. The painting says keen. I'm keen. You're keen. Smile. We're sold out. They adore you big eyes. He sells paintings, and he sells pictures of the paintings, and he sells postcards of pictures of the paintings. Good God, it's a movement. So, are you flipping for all this? Honestly, I can't believe I live here. I remember when Mama painted that. You're confused. I painted that. Uh, the two leads are Amy Adams as Margaret and Christoph Waltz as Walter. I thought Amy Adams is fantastic in this movie, as usual. She's once again just totally reinventing herself. She's a very different person than we've ever seen her play before. She's kind of underrated as a chameleon, I think. I mean, maybe not physically, but just the voices, mannerisms, the types of characters she plays, whether they're very kind of sexy or kind of dowdy or innocent. She can she can really just do, just play everything, you know, and... On the other side of the spectrum is Christoph Waltz, who is the uh, he's the anti-chameleon. I feel like every character he plays is basically exactly the same. The ingratiating, enthusiastic slime ball is kind of. I need to see another side of him soon, very yeah, soon, he's, Allison. I, he's he's become kind of like your. I don't know. He he is. I mean, he is what he is. He is Christoph Waltz. He's like has that one stock type. It's and that's what he's doing in Big Eyes. It is. It's interesting for me to hear you recommend this movie because he was actually a very a big problem for me. He, he bothered you too much. Too I much. felt I felt it, the movie works in spite of him. You know, if I I think it, if it, with a different actor in that role, I think the movie would have been even better, and maybe it would have bubbled up to the top of the Oscar biopic conversation. I think he does kind of weigh it down to a certain extent, but I think even without him, or even in spite of him. Adams is great. I think it's not a flashy movie, but a very nicely directed by Tim Burton. There's some nice, subtle things he's doing with 
Keen's art, the way it's placed in the frame, the way that he uses the camera to make Margaret sometimes feel pinned down, feel isolated, sort of puts her in a lot of corners of the set physically, like she's always kind of up against a wall. All that kind of stuff I thought was very nicely done. And I do think there are some interesting ideas in here about art, what makes good art, what makes bad art. Uh, and that does, again, make it a good companion piece to Ed Wood. I think they would be a good double feature of movies, these two movies about quote-unquote bad artists. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying that uh, you know, society at large or even people within the movies suggest they are bad artists. And I think that's interesting to explore. Yeah, well, and also interesting that Margaret is not the one who ever hungered for critical for being taken seriously no it, she has this passion she is, she to is make a sincere things sincere artist yes. in that way and all she wants to do is put her kind of passions on on canvas right it's the it's walter who gets really wounded by the idea that this art that he's not making right is not being taken seriously right and the fact that you know it's like her paintings are so peculiar but it's it's i think it's a really nice metaphor for being an artist and seeing the world in a particular way and then yeah, people in some way sort of rejecting this unique way you see things and be like, no, that's bad. That's wrong, you know, which is it is again, it's just very similar to Edward. So, yeah, it's a movie to check out. I think if you're not a Christoph Waltz fan, I will say that that might be a deal breaker for you. But I think I think it works enough that it's worth checking out. That's big eyes. It'll be available on VOD on April 14th. Two more quick picks for you here. The first one is called Alex of Venice. It's directed by Chris Messina, and it'll be available on VOD on April 16th. Uh, I'll read you the plot description from the Movies on Demand website here. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Don Johnson, and Chris Messina star in Messina's directorial debut about a successful attorney balancing work and family after her husband leaves unexpectedly. It premiered at last year's Tribeca Film Festival, and it got good reviews there, actually. Uh, Variety gave it a very nice review, said Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who's an actress I like, gives a uh, extraordinary performance, was the phrase they used to describe it. I like Chris Messina, Don Johnson. Uh, it's a nice little cast He's there. He's good in it. Oh, you've seen yeah, it? Yeah, I have seen this. It's a nice, it's a small movie, but it's really nicely done. We were talking about Tribeca. The next Tribeca Film Festival starts next week as we're recording this. So this was from last year's Tribeca. Tribeca Festival that a lot that has a lot of movies like this. Little indie movies. A lot of times they've fallen through the cracks of other festivals for whatever reason. They wind up at Tribeca and then a lot of them, you know, they kind of get VOD releases and... This is one you say, though, was yeah, good. I think it is worth it's it's worth seeking out. And it also is incidentally also set in Venice, Venice Beach, kind of that area uh -huh. in California and shows all of the canals and that like really just stunning part of California that I don't think you get to see in movies very often. Mm. So of, of Los Angeles that you don't get to see. So for that, as well as for the acting and the kind of portrait of I don't know, a woman kind of having to find her own way. It's it's really well done. All right, cool. So that's Alex of Venice, available on VOD on April 16th. And that was a movie from last year's Tribeca Film Festival. And I actually have one that's playing at this year's Tribeca Film Festival. It's on VOD ahead of its Tribeca dates. It's already played other festivals. It premiered at Venice last year and then also played Toronto. It's called Far From Men. It's directed by David Olhoffen. And it'll be available on VOD on April 14th. I'll read you the plot description. 
set in Algeria, 1954, former French army soldier Daru, played by Vigo Mortensen, is attempting to lead a quiet life as a schoolteacher in a small mountainous town at the onset of the Algerian War of Independence. But when he is tasked with transporting an Algerian dissident to a nearby city to stand trial, Daru finds his peaceful existence disrupted by the ensuing chaos that surrounds his village. And I just thought, cast... Uh, Viggo Mortensen premise sounded interesting. The pedigree has played a bunch of good film festivals. I've actually seen this you, one as well. <laughs> why am I talking? Allison, is this one worth seeing? It is. It's, oh, it's great. like a Western, I'd say, like an Algerian, Algerian Western. Western. Oh, that sounds it also, intriguing. It was like one of two films that was at Toronto this year that featured Viggo Mortensen acting. He speaks multiple languages and has recently right. been doing a lot of foreign language films. In this one, he speaks mostly French with like a smattering of Arabic. Okay. And in uh, and Howha, a little Elvish, I'm assuming as well. as well. Just a you know, smidge. Just throws it in. Yeah. But in Howha, he speaks mostly uh, Danish with some deliberately bad Spanish. So what can't he do, that Viggo Mortensen? He's good. I'd like to see him get back. I mean, he, I think he's deliberately doing some, you know, more interesting, weird, uh, foreign, international art house films. I wouldn't. I would like to see him back in a big movie. He really hasn't done anything really big since, in a while. I feel like since Hidalgo, maybe was the last <laughs> one. Maybe I don't want to see him in big things again. <laughs> I don't but... know. I've got a soft spot for that movie actually. He, <laughs> I'm he looking plays, at pictures of him. At, he's good at westerns. I mean, this he like, is. this movie, Far From Men, is essentially an unconventional western i'm looking at his wikipedia page as we're discussing and they're just pictures of him with various hairs all of them magnificent <laughs> one flowing mane one a little shorter but yeah he's got great hair he does he can speak five languages and he has fabulous hair what what a lucky son of a gun he is well anywho that's far from men that'll be available on vod on april 14th bless me father for i've sinned it's been uh... It's been too long since my last confession. My dad, he used to come to this church back when I was a kid. He was a fighter, uh, old school boxer. Lost more than he won that uh, 2431 record before he. Uh... But he could take a punch. Jesus, he could take a punch. Language? Sorry, Father. So every episode, we give you three options for our next main review, and you vote on the one you want us to discuss. On the last episode, those choices were the film duo, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, Him and Her, and then Netflix's Marvel's, Dare Netflix's Marvel's Daredevil. It's catchy. Yes. Series. Uh, and then the Bell and Sebastian musical, God Help the Girl. And Eleanor Rigby and Daredevil like really went down to the wire. It was very, very close. Daredevil pulled off a dramatic last-minute win with just a few votes, but mm. it was really it, Eleanor Rigby held its own. Uh, but Daredevil is the latest branch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, and as, as opposed to Marvel's other television properties that exist so right now, Agents of Shield and Agent Carter, Daredevil arrives on the equivalent of cable, certainly in terms of what's allowed it in terms of content. It is the latest Netflix original series and the first of four Marvel series that Netflix will be rolling out. Uh, it'll be followed by the one by one about Jessica Jones and then Iron Fist and then Luke Cage and then there will be a mini series uniting all of them as the Defenders. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The Defenders. <laughs> Defenders assemble. Anyway, 
Drew Goddard, the director of the Alienating the Geeky. You said it yourself. I, you're you're really working. I got I got to fill my quota of <laughs> alienating geekiness. Go ahead. Drew Goddard, the director of The Cabin in the Woods, was originally brought on to be the showrunner, and mm. he also wrote the first two episodes, uh, though he stepped down and Stephen S. DeKnight, who is best known for the Spartacus series on Stars, took his place. Uh, I think what's most Im- immediately noteworthy about Daredevil is that this is really as dark as the Marvel Cinematic Universe has gotten so far. It's been lighter, certainly, than other recent superhero uh, I don't know, franchises um, in terms of tone and in terms of violence. It's got broken bones coming in through skin. Mm-hmm. It's got impaled heads. Self-impaled, Self-impaled heads. Thank you very heads. much. Yeah, that was quite an image. <laughs> um, Charlie Cox plays Daredevil, whose real name is Matt Murdock, as committed but also tormented. Uh, he divides his time between being a defense attorney alongside his best friend, Foggy Nelson, played by uh, Eldon Henson of the Mighty Ducks trilogy, of course, uh, and a masked vigilante trying to save his neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen from the plans of Wilson Fisk, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Matt Murdock was blinded in an accident as a child, got toxic chemicals in his eyes, and following this, his other senses became very heightened because of it. He has basically radar. Um, He's also an incredible martial artist, and the series features extensive fight sequences in basically every episode. So, Matt, as someone who's more familiar, alienatingly familiar, with the comic (laughs) book character, what do you think of this take on Daredevil, whose previous big big screen incarnation in 2003 with Ben Affleck didn't work out so well? And does Marvel wear this grittiness well? Uh, I don't know. I don't know, Allison. I'm so I'm so I'm I'm disappointed. I want to be able to be like, yes, it wears it so well and it's awesome and it but I'm not I didn't really like this show very much so far. I haven't we've had to we should say we were recording a little earlier than we normally would and the show came out on Friday. Right. So we haven't had time to finish it. You've watched nine and a half episodes. And I've only watched six. But I have to say with more time, I would have watched more, but I would have been mostly watching out of Mild curiosity and mostly obligation. I, I'm not enjoying the series that much so far. In terms of comparing it to the comic book, which you asked me about, there are really two different types of Daredevil stories or, or, or larger arcs of stories. You know how these things go. A writer comes on. They, they put their own twist on it. There have been a lot of very dark Daredevil stories, for sure. He is one of the darker heroes frank miller right frank miller is the guy who really kind of reinvented the character yeah he was invented as kind of more of a swashbuckler in the spider-man mold he had all the you know the blindness and all the 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 backstory that's in the show is all from the stanley bill everett comics but generally he wasn't quite as melodramatic and catholic and moody and all those sorts of things that's really what yeah frank miller brought when he became the writer and artist of the series and uh, definitely put a major stamp on the on the character in a way that is largely still being felt. But it kind of swings. If you imagine it like as a pendulum, sometimes the book gets super, super dark, and I think inevitably it then swings back the other way. And honestly, some of my favorite Daredevil stories are the lighter ones. And so maybe that makes me a bad audience for this show. I don't know that I've enjoyed so many of the lighter ones that this one felt a little too dark to me. But I don't know. I don't know. The the book that's going on right now, I, I, it's actually one of my favorite comics on the stands right now. The Daredevil that's coming out right now is written by this guy named Mark Wade. It's fabulous. It's very little like 
the 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 show in terms of tone story-wise yeah it's matt murdoch blind lawyer and foggy nelson his buddy and uh, and so in that sense it's very you'll you'll find it familiar but the tone of it the look of it is much more bright and poppy and it's it's a little more it's not it's not as angsty for sure and uh through six episodes I'm just I'm not, I'm having trouble getting into it, and we can discuss why. I mean, the darkness of it is one reason, but I, I actually probably not my the main reason. I would say that I'm having trouble with it. What about you? I was disappointed by this as well, and I know people. So people are, have been very enthusiastic about it in my Twitter feed and on some Facebook. People, I've seen some. I've seen some other people have more reserve. We're gonna get we're gonna get hate mail. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. <laughs> Send us your hate. Yeah, I just I don't I think that. Part of, I think, my problem with this is, in addition to whatever general comic book superhero fatigue that I've been feeling, okay. it's been a lot lately. There has is been. That I, sure. I feel like the way that, and maybe this is just like a problem with Daredevil, it's just he feels like, this feels like retreading a lot of things we've seen already, particularly in the Nolan Batman. Sure. Like, I feel like there's not a lot that kind of sets daredevil aside he occupies a lot of the same territory i feel like as batman he feels like literally the poor man's batman uh except that he has you know this uh these he has powers. some superpowers but which they do, they kind of keep mysterious and vague through the first part of the show yeah he gets a little more specific about it eventually yeah. but it definitely is in, in part, his superpowers seem to be mostly just how incredibly badass he is when right. it comes to fighting. Right. And this showcases like fighting much more, just like hand-to-hand combat much more than I would have expected yep. in a superhero movie. And I feel like some of those sequences have been well done mm-hmm. and others just look like a lot of guys in wearing dark colors fighting in the dark. Right. In ways, and uh, but very few of them have seemed that exciting to me. I will say that some of those fight scenes, there's one, and I think it's episode two, two that has the take. very long take with an elaborate camera move moving like back and forth and circling a hallway that is pretty outstanding. It's actually better than a lot of the fight scenes in the Marvel movies, I would say. Yes, it's amongst- which are like, the tend to be more visually kind of like a lot of cutting yeah a lot yeah. of cutting a lot of special effects this feels much more like like a kung fu movie which is fantastic and i thought that was really the highlight of the first six episodes that i've seen but you're right a lot of them are at night and daredevil's wearing black he's fighting often cops wearing dark clothes and it is very hard to see it's a very dark visually it's not just thematically dark it is a visually very dark show and uh, it, so, yeah, there are times when these fights, even the, when you can tell that there's like cool flippity do moves going on, you can't really appreciate them because they're so poorly lit by, by design, I guess. But it's hard to make out. Yeah. And, you know, there you mentioned the, the scene in the hallway, which is this kind of deliberately showy and impressive. It's I thought it was really like, great. Yeah. Choreography involving just like a long take of like all of this fighting in the hallway. That really impressed me. There is, I think, in episode five, there was a the bit taxi in the taxi. Cab. Very the cool. Too. Camera that's kind yeah. of got a touch of Quarone to it. Yes. I feel like. And I. I was impressed by both of those. That's it a cool also one too. like a kind of nod to the long taken true detective and a kind of like, which in itself was a, almost seemed like staking out ground to be like television can be very, you know, like cinematic in a very kind of like aggressively stylized way as yeah. well. Like we can make this happen. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate that certainly, but I do find, I, 
I find, I think, also Daredevil and Matt Murdock as a character pretty boring. See, I'm going to give you, I don't think I have the first volume here. I would. I should give you the, the books that are going on now to read. They're really, really great. I, and, and he I is a fascinating character. I believe that, that he has the potential to do that just on screen here. I'm just... Well, how much of it, this is my question, how much is Matt Murdock and how much is Charlie Cox, the guy who's playing him, who I find a little... Underwhelming. A little, I mean, your, your Batman comparison, he has a very kind of poor man's Christian Vale vibe to me, right down to the American accent, which is like flat and, and like this. And I, it, it feels to me like I didn't know Charlie Cox before this show. I looked him up afterwards to see what else he's done. But as soon as the first words came out of his mouth, I was like, oh, great. He's not American. And he's trying to do a, you know, generic American from accent. nowhere American yeah. accent. And it's funny because Daredevil, the character, is blind, but it makes all of his other senses heightened. And here I was like, this is almost the opposite. It's like he's so focused on the voice that I almost felt like he was his he was like dulling. He wasn't focusing on anything else. He wasn't thinking about anything in his performance except that voice and getting the accent right. And I guess technically he gets it right. But I just I felt he was a, he was pretty bland so far, at least through six episodes. Yeah, I have liked him before, but like. In other roles where he tends to be more kind of mischievous and charming, you know. That's not this. And that is certainly not this. Yeah. And I think that I it, it he is pretty flat. And I think it's partially because also I just, I don't feel like I have a good sense of the character as right. anything other than like incredibly tough. Sure. You know. Uh, with determined, a, determined, driven, obsessed, having this sense of idealism. I don't. It's it's does very, he though? That's the other thing that's problematic about the show. I know, I think. and I feel like it, it sets up and it kind of does this more and more as it goes along. This yeah. idea of like, well, he doesn't. It sets up more and more as it goes along. This idea of like he doesn't kill people, and I feel like there becomes this weird like. It, it's such a stupid thing to angst over when there's so much violence in this. And he's and responsible he, for a lot of it. He tortures a, a guy. It. Right. And it kind of flickers over like throws a guy he, off a roof. Does he enjoy it? Is this his yeah. dark side? But I kind of at this point, especially given that I feel like variations of that dilemma have been themes throughout basically every superhero story that has sure. come up that you need more than that. I want to believe that he's actually scary. You know, right. I want to believe, but you don't. He's so kind of like you know he's the good guy. You know he's like the charming, like the the guy. Who, and and I don't. The other problem is, I don't really understand what the bad guys are doing. Right. Like uh, Vincent D'Onofrio. Again, by design, by I think design. they're keeping it mysterious. Right. But at this point, I'm like, I don't know what secret evil plan uh, Vincent D'Onofrio is up right. to that needs to be stopped. Right. But like, he also he claims to be wanting to help the city. But all we see him doing is illegal criminal activities. Right. At least through the six episodes I've watched. I'm assuming by the end of the it season, it, you get more of a better sense of what... The, because he... You know, they, again, I, I'm 100% in agreement with yeah. you. They set up this, like, dichotomy between them where they each see themselves as the same person, essentially. Right? right. Which is an interesting idea. You have to do some bad things to help you the, gotta for the crack greater a few, good. Right. Yeah. For the greater good, you got to crack a few eggs, blah, blah, blah. All those cliches, right? But... Like you said, with Daredevil, I don't understand this guy because, like you said, he he makes a point of I don't kill. He at one point he's like I don't like guns, you know, like so really setting him up as kind of a traditional comic book hero. And yet, as you said, he tortures people. He, he throws, throws a guy off, off a building. Right. And yeah. then confirms kind of afterwards, oh, he's still alive. He's alive. I put him in a coma. Right. And and Rosario Dawson's character says, like, are you enjoy you know, enjoying this? And that, as you said, that does become a theme through the first, you know, half of the season. But 
I, I just I, I don't understand that guy that right is he is he idealistic or is he not the whole premise of Daredevil at least as I thought it was and seems to be in the show is he is idealistic and when the justice system fails he has to become a vigilante to set things right and in here it, it doesn't... he's a vigilante already when it starts also right. it's you see him starting as a lawyer but he's also out there on the streets already like yeah. setting hostages you know like are involved in this human trafficking thing and stopping them i don't there's not a lot of a strong connection or at least for me between yeah, the persona of the lawyer and like the kind of person, and then the idea of the the real like the regular system failing, right? And then his vigilante work patching up the, you know, fixing what can't be fixed otherwise. Like the, it doesn't draw a strong connection between the two. It's trying, but it's I just trying. it's just not convincing. And also, I, I when your bad guy seems to be up to like a development deal, it's you know I. Vincent D'Onofrio, though, is great. great. Right. Yeah. I was just about to say, the one thing, I mean, I mean, in the way, part of the problem with Charlie Cox is, is that I just find him a little dry, and I'm really interested in Vincent D'Onofrio, who's doing a thing. He's going for it here. He's really playing the kingpin, although they don't call him that, that he's playing this big, mythic bad guy. And I put this on Twitter. It's like watching the show. I was like, in this era of anti-hero television, like... This show should really be about his character. He's Tony Soprano. He's the guy who is trying to balance this romance or his family life with these uh, crimes and also has these idealistic Right, is acting believing fully that he's Right. Like, he believes he's doing things the for city. the good, but yeah. he's doing these horrible things and how do you live with that and how do you rationalize that and how do you run this giant criminal organization and maintain the peace between all these factions like that's the show I kind of want to see through five episodes. Like I, the uh, Foggy, Foggy Nelson, the and uh, Karen Page, and these characters who are so cutesy and like, I don't, I'm not interested. Like so far, I'm just not really interested in them. But I'm very interested in in Wilson Fisk, and I felt like in this era, it almost makes more sense to do the, not Daredevil, but to do Kingpin or to do Wilson Fisk. Like that's the show, at least through the episodes I've seen, that I want to see. Yeah, absolutely, and I. I mean, the thing that I I am curious about as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, continues to be this like growing thing is how how you scale superhero stories because if Avengers is the biggest one each time, right? Right. Like you have it, it, by design is your I don't know giant uh, supergroup. Everyone band gets back together and mm -hmm. uh, fights the biggest thing of all time at the moment. That. How, the individual stories, like how do you scale them down? How do you also have them be exist in different genres, basically? And I like the idea that this tries to be a crime drama about, you know, corruption, basically, and about, yeah. uh, uh, like, uh, about this very like urban kind of development schemes and right. controlled apartments and people getting bullied out of them and all of that. It just it feels in practice very garbled. To me, I saw someone compare this to or say this is the closest thing Marvel's going to get to the wire. But to me, that's a horrifying thought. That if this is, is as good. If this is as complex as I mean, I can see the comparison in that it's a it, it has, you know, people on both sides of the law are the characters and they're being compared to one another and and all that sort of thing. And, and bureaucracies on both sides exist. But it's it's a far far cry from that the one thing the larger point i wanted to make that i want to make sure we discuss before we run out of time here because we're already starting to go on a little long is the idea of binge watching this show and binge watching in general yeah and 
maybe I'm I'm sure other people will write in to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com and say that they love this show. They were addicted to it from the beginning and they binged it easily. But uh, this was not a show that I really enjoyed binging. And it seemed like by design, it was not like a binge. A show that you want to binge to me is a show that is there's constantly churning over stories to the point where an ending on big cliffhangers where you finish an episode and you physically cannot stop yourself from watching the next one. And by design, Daredevil seems to be the opposite. It's not like 13 really exciting adventures. It is at least through the half that I watched, it is one big story. And the only episode that I thought had a good cliffhanger was number five, where Daredevil is cornered by the cops. And you go, how is he going to get out of this? And they, like, the beginning of the next episode is, oh, they're dirty cops. He can just beat them up with, like, there's no moral or ethical issue with beating the crap out of them. Right. Who cares? Which I thought was really disappointing, but it was a great cliffhanger. I'll give them that. And I'm, I just, I, I don't know even know what to call this, but it's almost like the expectation of binge watching is now ruining. Like they're almost like these people are going to watch all 13 episodes. They're going to be feel obligated to watch it. And they do have a built in audience. It's Daredevil. It's Marvel. There is a big fan base. But I really felt like they were not doing enough to keep me coming back episode after episode. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that you see this a bit in House of Cards as well, where it's the, the off- latest season particularly. Yeah. And uh, I tried to watch Bloodline, the the most recent drama before this. And as I was told by many people, it doesn't really get going into the last four episodes. Out, which of, is 13? A, out of 13, which is a terrifying thing to say to anyone. And what, what I find fascinating is we're primarily movie people still. Yes. When we tell people a movie is two hours and 10 minutes long, they're like, oh, so long. And this is literally like a 13 hour movie and and people will watch it. Yeah. So why will they not complain about a 13 hour movie in TV, quote unquote, TV form in Daredevil and literally a movie that's two hours and 10 minutes I will hear people tell me I can't sit for that long. Yeah, I don't know, especially because I feel like when a two-hour, ten-minute movie will give you the whole story. We'll if you, you watch two story. hours of Daredevil, you're you're getting like a third of an of a first act. Yeah, I know. It's this. I really felt it in this and in Bloodline, where I just I was like, I give up. Like, there's nothing. I don't feel like there's been anything happening in five episodes. Right. Uh, and in this, uh, you know, um. Vincent D'Onofrio does not show up in person until the end of episode three. Sure. And you're like, and we've already said he's our favorite part. He's our favorite part. Yeah. I mean, the first episode, as much, it has a lot of work to do, obviously, to introduce you to this character and what happened to him and all of that. But I feel like if that had been on cable television and had been given out as a pilot or, you know, I've been given handed out to critics as a pilot, people would have been like, that's very underwhelming because nothing happens. And you say it has a lot of, you say it has a lot of work to do. It still leaves a lot of that work undone. It leaves a lot of stuff sort of left open to slowly kind of drag these things out. I can't remember which episode is, uh, this kind of starts happening more, but instead of, I would say instead of having episodes that have what in a traditional episodic sense, you have like your, your a plot and then you have your larger plot as well. uh, It has kind of focuses on different characters. Okay. So there's an episode that's kind of focused on uh, Fisk and starts with him. There's an episode that has Scott Glenn as this, as this mentor character. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I, I feel like that it, it sort of is using that instead of having an episode be, about a particular story or theme. And 
I don't think it's it does the same achieves the same kind of satisfaction. Yeah, and I, I don't know. This I I think this is very this is a kind of to me this is a really important thing, not just about Daredevil, but about the future of television, especially on these streaming services. It's like they're putting these 13 episodes out all at once with the express purpose to have people binge them. Like that's the thing now, binge, binge, binge. And the shows that made binge watching a thing were made serialized and that's what made people want to binge them was that they were so they were so addictive. That's to get people coming back a week later. You had to have a good hook, and it's like now it's like well they're gonna watch them all, and they're all available, so they're gonna just keep watching anyway. It's like we've forgotten right. that key well, component. And, and it's not even. It's funny because I feel like it's neither. What's going on here is neither serial like the best part of being serialized or being episodic. Like these episodes don't do that kind of like ne- drive forward. Like what's gonna happen next right. week. And they don't do like a, this is a whole, each episode is a self-contained piece either. That's, you know? I need, I need more of that. I think is what I really need is more of, of it, of each episode to be in, of its own, to be enjoyable, which is a comic book thing, yeah. right? Well, you, which, a comic and, book and has to be, like, it's each individual unit should be enjoyable on its own. And which is a television thing. Yes. An episode should have Daredevil, some sense of standing alone. And Daredevil is a lawyer. How easy... Could it be to make a show where each episode he solves a case? Yeah. Right? That, like, or something that marks time, at least, that kind of like gives a different. Like you're saying, the A plot, him. B plot. Like, yeah. have, have there be some, like, have him doing something besides this ongoing murky murky kind of conspiracy plot thing that unfails so slowly all right we've we're, we're gonna get so much angry email about this <laughs> well i don't i i would like to hear like do you think that this don't yell works? at us tell us what yeah, worked about us, it i would be curious worked. to hear like that to hear, yeah. yeah all right we've gone long is there anything else very quickly that we haven't mentioned that you really want to uh maybe, maybe even positively mention? oh yeah i i will say that i was i i was kind of not concerned but i was I, preemptively amused by how this series would handle the fact that Hell's Kitchen is these days a very expensive sure. like neighborhood filled with cute restaurants. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it does sort of deal with this in being about how the neighborhood has been decimated in the events that happened in the Avengers. Yes. And it folds that in. That's nicely done. And I think it handles that fairly well. I agree with that. Yes. I agree with that. That's a nice touch. And and generally, I do think that this shows that there could be... Uh, I, I'm still really looking forward to those other series that Netflix is making because the production values are good. Like you said, the fight scenes are definitely a step up from the sort of what you would expect from a TV show. You know, even like good shows, good action shows, a lot of them, the, the fighting can often be pretty tepid or at least just very generic. Here there are those flashes of moments where you're going, this is special. This is better than the average. There's a lot of care. Yes, put in them clearly for yeah. sure for sure i just I, I i just felt like i've watched six episodes and i feel like i just i don't feel like i've watched six episodes worth of content i feel like i've watched one i've watched half of one episode that was six hours long and it just i need more i need more i need i need to be like uh, when we're done are we am i gonna go back and watch the the last seven episodes honestly i don't know i'll probably start one this week and we'll see if I finish that. And then, you know, like I've heard other people say, like you said about Bloodline, that it does get better as it gets later in the series. But that's not a great formula. It's like, well, you got to watch nine boring hours and then there's four good hours. To me, that's not a good formula for success. No. And then also kind of like, then why are we making 13 episode seasons? That's a, that's a great point, too, that we haven't said. Yeah. Why? Did, why? If, it, if you've got five episodes of story, make five episodes. I don't know why every Netflix show has to be 13. Even House of Cards this year, which we generally enjoyed probably would have been better at like 10 episodes yeah agreed all right 
well, that's Daredevil season one or as much of it as we watched. And we'll maybe we'll check in. Maybe we'll ask in two weeks if you finished it, if I finished it. Yeah. I think listeners would want to know. We will let you know in two weeks. If you haven't watched it yet, it is available now on Netflix. If you are watching it or you have watched it, send us your feedback. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. I live my Let's get to our cue shots about movies about blind people. We, we're going to be a little quicker here because we did go a little longer than usual on Daredevil. I do want to say, before I let Allison uh, get to her picks or if she has any general thoughts, I decided to go very specific this time because we're doing Daredevil, which is not just a blind character, but he's a blind action hero. So I decided to do only movies about blind action heroes, of which there is a small but very potent uh, subgenre, which I enjoy, actually. I do think there's something kind of beautiful about the hero with the disability that is actually secretly like his power. I think there's something very kind of beautiful and poetic about that. And that is very true of Daredevil, though we didn't talk a lot about that. Just the fact that he's blind, but he kind of sees better than everyone else. There's something so wonderful there that I do enjoy just as an idea and is repeated in uh, all of my picks this time. Yeah, and I went the opposite way, which is that I I wanted to find movies that dealt specifically with the sense of vulnerability that can come with feeling blind. I don't like feeling vulnerable. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, obvi- it frightens me. It obviously is a vastly different way to experience the world. Yes. And you're, you're are short one sense. And uh, given that there, I, I feel like movies sometimes tend to treat blindness as either this, yes, this like it's a superpower, a superpower, which, give, which gives you these like other, it like amazing the other senses, senses or, it makes you this doler out of wisdom about life. True. You know? Very true. Right. Uh, the the blind person who sees more clearly sage. than yes. other people. Yes. So I wanted to see if I could Well, find that's movies. not just movies though. That does go back to like exactly. the Greeks and, yeah. and things like that. Sure. We but I say. wanted I wanted to uh find one or two choices that kind of Good. Dealt with Good. The, like, so we'll get a nice range. Yes. Do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? All right. Well, if I'm gonna talk about blind men in action films, then I have to have a Zadoichi movie on here. He is the blind itinerant masseur played by actor Shintaro Katsu in 26 films and and over 100 television episodes between 1962 and 1989. It's one of the longest-running multimedia franchises of all time. At the beginning of every film, Zadoichi wanders into a village where rival gangs are feuding or a child's been kidnapped, sometimes a woman is in danger, and invariably he resolves to dissolve, uh, fix the dispute or save the innocent. Uh, and at the end of every film, he just wanders off into his next adventure. It's sort of one part Yojimbo, one part Western, and one part the old Incredible Hulk or the Fugitive TV show. And he was basically created within a year or two or Daredevil. I don't think we can say that he... You know, inspired Daredevil, but there are some very interesting similarities right down to the idea of the blind hero whose secret weapon is hidden inside his cane. In the case of Zadoichi, he has a sword hidden in his cane. 25 of the 26 original Zadoichi films are all streaming on Hulu Plus, courtesy of the Criterion Collection, who recently released a massive box set of the whole series. I would recommend you start with the original 
very outstanding, very beautiful, actually, Tale of Zatoichi from 1962. But I already recommended that film (laughs) on SVU number 57, which was our episode about sword fights in movies tied to our review of Ghost Dog. So I will recommend a different one this time and say installment number 21 and no, you don't need to watch them in any particular order. This is Zatoichi Goes to the Fire Festival. It was actually recommended to me when I was asking on Twitter for recommendations. Uh, listen, uh, I don't know if he's a listener. A follower of mine on Twitter anyway, Anthony Pronto, at P-E-R-O-N-T-O 907, suggested this one. And I watched it. And it was a very good recommendation on his part. This is the... Description from Criterion, uh, co-written by star Shintaro Katsu, this adventure pits Zatoichi against one of his most diabolical foes, a blind Yakuza boss whose reign of terror and exploitation has made him nearly mythic. Guest starring the legendary Tatsuya Nakadai as a ronin haunted by a traumatic past and featuring an unforgettable nude sword fight in a bathhouse, this 21st entry in the series is a fan favorite. And that really gives you all the elements right there that are good. Great villain, great guest stars, great set pieces. Uh, it's it's and you got like the evil double of Zatoichi, the blind Yakuza boss. It's it's really fantastic. The installment feels a little 1970s-ish, especially the score is almost it's verging almost on not quite disco, but just some of the the way they use strings and stuff feels very very 1970s. Um, but it, it's a it's a very entertaining and again for a for a sort of a you know blind swordsman movie it's really beautiful there's some wonderful beautiful photography there's this one fight over this shallow grave in a forest that's illuminated by this one shaft of light breaking through the canopy of trees it's just really gorgeous so try that one or try if that doesn't sound great try another one try the first one like daredevil again zatoichi exists in a shared universe he has met yojimbo toshiro mifune's yojimbo or a character who is basically just like yojimbo he met the one-armed swordsman played by jimmy wang yu he exists in a so go out there and find the the zatoichi movie that's right for you that would be my (laughs) advice the constant is katsu as zatoichi he's fantastic I, and I, I think I said this the other time when I recommended the first movie. I would love – talk about binge-watching. I would love to just put aside everything and watch all of these movies. I I would have had a lot more fun, I suspect, binging these movies than I did binging <laughs> the first six episodes of Daredevil. So that's Zatoichi. The whole franchise is available on Hulu+. Plus. I recommended this time Zatoichi Goes to the Fire Festival. But I have a feeling you probably can't go too wrong with any of them. All right. For my first pick, I went with a 1991 Australian film called Proof, which is available for rent on all of the usual usual platforms. And yeah, in in the interest of also of showcasing someone who is blind and who's very self-sufficient, but who also has major trust issues uh, all related to his lack of sight. Uh, It's directed by Jocelyn Morehouse and stars it's a Hugo Weaving as Martin, who is a 32-year-old man who lives by himself with the help of a housekeeper who stops by occasionally and is obsessed with the idea that having to rely he has to rely on people sometimes to tell him what's happening, right? Like what's what's happening that he can't see, is obsessed with the idea that people might lie to him about this and he wouldn't know the difference. And so instead he takes photos so that he can double check this against 
uh, someone else's description of what's happening in the photo later. And he has proof that that's actually, it's actually true that what was happening uh, is, is there in the photo and he's gotten other confirmation. Um, and uh, he, He's he is involved in these two relationships in his life. His housekeeper Celia, who's played by Genevieve Picot, has this kind of obsessive crush on him that he knows about, and they have this real love hate relationship in which she seems part of her affection for him or her, her like fixation on him seems to come from her ability, like the power that she might have over him. When we first see her, he's coming in out of the rain and he's like taking off his shirt and she doesn't let him know that she's there watching him for a while uh, until he smells her cigarette. The, and, and that relationship is very interesting and it gets paralleled with the one that uh, Martin forms with Andy, played by a very young Russell Crowe who is a restaurant worker that he befriends and who kind of becomes his new, the guy who like helps him, tells him what's in the photos and who hangs out with him and who uh, becomes like the more trusted person in his life than Celia. And uh, one thing that I really like in this movie is that you have this character who is kind of ferociously afraid of being, of being pitied, but also of being taken advantage of. But that in in some ways, both of these characters are both of the characters in his life who come kind of come into his life fixate on him because of the ways in which they can kind of potentially take advantage of him. Celia, at one point, we see her house and it's just filled with photos of 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 Martin that he doesn't know she's taken. And uh, Andy, you know, is a generally nice guy, but uh at one point is spying on his friend and kind of ducks behind a tree when it looks like he's going to have a photo taken. He's going to end up in one of his photos. And uh, I, I think that idea, that bit of darkness there is, is what makes this a, a kind of particularly pointed and uh, kind of edgy movie. Uh, Hugo Weaving's particularly good as Martin and you understand both why he's so he's so kind of independent and prickly and, and a little bitter, but also why he's so appealing, uh, why people can't kind of uh, are so fascinated by him. And uh, Russell Crowe, you know, fairly early in his career. And I think he's always had that kind of charisma and is a little, it's kind of a lighter presence than he ha kind of has become later in his career. But I, I think that this movie, it, it extends a lot of empathy towards this blind character who is, not particularly likable and uh, it manages to make him very compelling without softening him in any way all tracing this back to this kind of abstract moment with his mom who he uh he thought lied to him and kind of started this whole mistrust he had um and who he believed was ashamed of him so it's a neat little movie and one that really i think digs directly into the idea of of how you might feel having to rely on people for, particularly for descriptions of something that's happening uh, and how, how that just opens up this possibility that if they're not telling you the truth, how would you ever know? Mm. And uh, you know, it's, it's a neat little film and it's got, you know, Hugo Weaving and Russell Crowe both earlier in their careers and both very good. It's proof and it is available for rent. It sounds like a really interesting movie actually. And uh, yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. For my second choice, I thought very hard, actually, just about recommending two Zatoichi movies because I was enjoying mm -hmm. watching them so much. But I found something even better. 
a modern remake of Sadoichi from 1989 starring Rutger Hauer that reconceives the character as a Vietnam vet who lost his sight during the war and now roams America looking for adventure. As you do. It is called Blind Fury, Allison, and it is amazing. <laughs> it also has an incredible poster and tagline that I put on Twitter. People can go find that on my uh uh, on my Twitter account, or just type in like "Blind Fury" poster, you'll find you'll 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 know which one I'm talking about when you see it. It's a pretty magnificent poster. The movie, which is directed by Rabbit Proof Fence director Philip Noyce of all people, is a loose remake of Zatoichi Challenged, which is uh, one of the installments where a dying woman gets Zatoichi to take her son to live with his father that he's never met. Uh, and when he gets there, he finds that the father is deeply indebted to a gangster. So in the remake, the father. Uh, played by Lost's Terry O'Quinn, is a old war buddy of the Rutger Hauer Zadoichi character, who's named Nick Parker. And he goes to pay his old friend a visit, finds uh, he's divorced his wife and left his son, and happens to show up right when these thugs appear to kidnap the child to use him against the father character to sort of force him to make illegal drugs for this mobster guy. So naturally, Nick Parker slices and dices them all to hell and then takes the kid to reno where the mobsters are holding the dad did you get you got that so far allison uh sort of okay good so even though this is the late 80s when this movie was made and said it's a fairly faithful adaptation of that zatoichi movie the difference is zatoichi's movies are set in like the 1850s i believe or thereabouts that century in japan so he is a blind swordsman in a land filled with swordsmen with samurai and ronin and, and so it's not unusual for a guy to be good with a sword to be walking around with a sword and in this case rutger hauer is wandering around america with a sword <laughs> in 1989 america where the bad guys have automatic rifles and there are cars. There's a sequence where he drives a car in a chase scene. Uh, and, you know, so it's a guy who's fighting, you know, dudes with guns and, and kicking their butt. So it's already a little sillier as a premise, right? You can almost buy the blind swordsman in a land of, of other swordsmen when it's a blind swordsman who's destroying four dudes with guns. You're really starting to push it. But the movie kind of knows that it sort of embraces that sillier side and makes it work. So it's it's a big action movie, but at times it's also almost like a silent comedy. Rutger Hauer, who actually does, I would say, gives a pretty convincing performance as a blind man. Like he actually nails the mannerisms and 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 is convincing in the part in a way that not a lot of actors are. I find, and he does a lot of scenes where he kind of bumbles his way through, almost like in Mr. Magoo fashion, but with fight scenes. So. Uh, he's pretending to be very clumsy, and it's actually they're, they reminded me of like Chaplin esque sequences almost, where there's one fight scene where he acts accidentally, quote unquote, beats up three obnoxious teenagers who have poisoned his lunch and abused this girl, and it's hilarious and great. Where he's just like, "Oh, sorry, excuse me, pardon," you know, like where he's knocking people over with his cane. His it's just like Zatoichi he has a sword inside a cane <laughs> for some reason, and so. It's basically Zatoichi as an over-the-top action movie with silent movie comedy. It is like someone took my dreams and transmitted them <laughs> directly onto celluloid. Allison, it is a masterpiece. It is fantastic. I I had never heard of this movie before this week, and now I don't know how I lived without it. I'm going to get a Blind Fury tattoo. <laughs> I'm going to get a cane with a sword inside of it and walk around. I I want to. I just want to watch this movie over and over again. I rented it on Amazon. It is available that way. 
I, it is highly recommended. I have not seen it, but I am sold. I'm surprised you didn't mention the fact that it was written by Charles Robert Carner, though. Who is? Uh, he wrote a movie called Jim Cotta. What? Yes. I didn't know I this. I can't believe you didn't mention this. Uh, my research was faulty. Someone <laughs> fire my researcher. So basically, it's, it's your perfect movie. I really, th- you know, it's funny that you say this because as I was watching it, I was like, boy, this is really silly. It's kind of Jim Cotta-ish. Wow. All right. Well, my next my my next pick is not I wouldn't call it silly. It it's got like a slightly goofy premise, but it's definitely horror and it's definitely scary in a way that is all entirely related to its main character's lack of sight and then regaining of sight. That is the eye, which is currently streaming on Hulu. You know, this came out uh during the heyday of Japanese horror really in 2002. And it certainly shares some similarities, but I think it's what's neat about it is that it is very distinctively uh, a kind of like Chinese horror film. It's it's a Hong Kong Singaporean film directed by the Pang brothers, who uh, the, are yet another brother directing team. There are so many, and uh, eventually spawned sequels and a remake, including there are several remakes, including the U.S. one, Jessica, that Jessica Alba, Alba? Yeah. which I really do not recommend. I don't think I've seen it, but I remember it. Yeah, but the original is really spooky and in, with a kind of great premise, which is that the main character, who's played by Angelica Lee, whose name is Mun, uh, has been blind since she was two, and she gets a cornea transplant. They're donated from you know, someone who passed away and uh, is given sight back. Her sight is restored, but she's also been blind for most of her life. So not only does she, she needs to learn to see and to kind of process this information that's coming into her eyes. And so it takes her a while to understand that she is not seeing the same things that everyone else is, that she is seeing as you do dead people. And I, the movie really uses this, I, I think, it has like such a great setup in uh, and kind of like building action in which this character is already very overwhelmed by all of this, the experience of suddenly having sight again and having all of this information come in again. And, you know, to then understand that, say, the woman in the hospital that she saw uh, had actually died earlier that evening is something that's really difficult to explain. And, you know, maybe gets seen as part of just like the psychological stress of what she's going through as opposed to something that's actually supernatural. Uh, one of the things that this movie does really well is just use even like focus, like as the care, like something coming into focus as something that's, uh, as this kind of terrifying thing. Um, when you understand that the kind of like what you're seeing on screen is not entirely trustworthy that you're seeing things that uh, uh, that this character is not really sure how to understand if this thing is real or not. And it's got some really spectacularly spooky scenes. Uh, there's a really good one involving an elevator that is, uh, I couldn't, like, I closed my eyes when I got back. I was watching, <laughs> rewatching some of this and I was like, I couldn't watch it. Um, it was just too creepy. But it, it uses them really well. And with very few special effects, the ghosts in this are people, you know, they are, they are people to whom like bad or disturbing or troubling things have happened and they are, they're restless. But it's, I, one of the things I like about this movie beyond the fact that it, it's really guided by the experience of being sightless, uh, of having no sight and then 
and then having it restored and actually puts those experiences very much on screen is that it's also very much it's these are Chinese ghosts. It draws a lot from like Chinese superstitions and Chinese kind of cultural treatments of, of ghosts in the afterlife. And I, I really like that. Uh, I don't think that you really get that sense of a very different cultural experience that often in horror and the idea that like other people have a different take on the, the scary things that go bump in the night. And uh, I, the other thing that should be said about this movie uh is that it's it's a Hong Kong film and it gets really mushy at the end. <laughs> it's it's unlike mushy. Unlike yeah, unlike a say a I would say a Jap a lot of the Japanese horror films that came out around this time, which ended with like these dread yeah. these endings filled with dread and uncertainty or um or darkness. Mm-hmm. That uh, this one ends with if not like a totally happy ending, it certainly kind of turns things around. And I don't resent that. I think sometimes you can use a little lightness. But uh, the ending is certainly not as strong as the middle section is, which is the middle section is really great. But I think it it uses this premise really well. And while kind of keeping, I think, a, some respect for its its main character and for like what would actually be the experience of trying to process having a sense return to you after not having it for a long time. Um, so that is The Eye. It is on Hulu. It is a spooky movie, and I would recommend it. Sounds good to me. All right, it's time for everyone's favorite segment of Film Spotting SVU, the segment Allison does not know the name of. I do not know the name Singer of Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. We've got three movies to talk about. One is already in theaters. Two that are opening this Friday as you're listening this to this, if you're listening to it around when we release it. And the movie that's already out is called Ex Machina. It's a new film from Alex Garland, his directorial debut. He's the writer of films like Dread, 28 Days Later. The Beach. The Beach, Sunshine. Yeah. So a very good writer making his directorial debut. Allison, does he have a future as a director as well as a writer? I like this one a lot. It's got, it's kind of that old, old school, you're like kind of heady, talky sci-fi. Yeah. Deals with some big themes, really elegantly made. Yep. Really only three main characters and yep. it, it really pushes off against, they push off against each other really well and it, I think he's got a good directorial sense too. This is this is a movie with some very striking images. And good with actors too. Yeah. It's uh, Oscar Isaac particularly good, I think, in this as like a genius programmer basically. <laughs> Did you call him a bro-grammar? A bro-grammar, yeah. Just making sure, yes. Yeah. Um, Alicia Vikander is uh, also really good in this, in a role that, like, would seem to call for her to just be, like, this objectified thing in a weird, in, like, the, in a robotic way, and then really builds on her, uh, she's, she's spooky, as well as kind of appealing and vulnerable seeming. And uh, I, yeah, I was just, I was really satisfied by this, I, and I think it, it does a lot to to kind of counter, say, something like Chappie, which is a movie about how it like gloriously it sentimentalizes artificial intelligence and the idea that uh, a successful artificial intel like an example of artificial intelligence would be just like us, right? Right. And it really and also that would pick up guns and, and start shooting things, and, but for good and learn you know kind of hip hop terms, yeah, yeah, for good, yes. I hated Chappie, and I, I really I hate, enjoyed this movie. I hated too. Chappie as well, and I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's good. I, I I need to see it again. I didn't feel like I got it all on the first viewing, but the good side of that is I would want to see it again. I would want to dive back into this world and these characters. Oscar Isaac is incredible. 
I want to see him and Amy Adams in a movie together. That might be my like ultimate cast right now. They're my, probably my two favorite working, busy working actors right now. I love them both. He's great in this. Alicia Vikander as the robot is fantastic. The effects, however they did them, I have no idea. I don't want to know. They're great. They're they, incredible. Great. Yeah. Incredible. As you said, it's a good looking movie for a guy making his first movie. I think he was very smart the way he did it, not biting off more than he could chew, making it this small little film with three characters, really focusing on the characters, the acting, and the dynamics between them. It's really, really interesting. There's a lot of female nudity in the film. I felt I, I'm not really sure I know exactly why it's all there, how it works, because there is this element of it that is kind of I don't know, that could be read as a sort of like a movie about men controlling women. And I didn't I felt like some of the excessive female nudity undermined that a little bit. That's interesting. It didn't bother me because I felt like the part of the point of it was that they had create that these things were created to be pleasing, right? Yeah. And that it kind of cuts through all of that by being like, like, can you objectify something that's not human? <laughs> you know, In the answer that, is it, yes. Right. Yes, I can. Well, that it, <laughs> it raises that to be like, you know, if you are not even part of the, the system that is being uh, of that world that is of sexuality, human sexuality, say, right. like your design has nothing to do with you. It's a very fair. That's a fair point. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, this is one of the things I want to watch about it again, because I give Alex Garland a lot of credit. I think it's a very smart, well-written movie. That was the one thing that I couldn't quite wrap my head around. It's definitely, it's got some very complex things going on with regard to gender. Gender and sexuality. And I feel like I need another viewing to really wrap my head around it. But I want that second viewing. So I think that's a good sign. So that's Ex Machina. Definitely recommended by both of us. Now, Opening next week, we have two films we've both already seen, Unfriended and True Story. Which did you like more? Unfriended. So did I. Yeah. Unfriended. Significantly. And I I think probably people, when we describe them, people will be like, no, that's not possible. But it is actually possible. Unfriended is a movie set entirely on a MacBook Pro screen (laughs) in a lengthy Skype call. Basically, it's a horror movie. Uh, It's a a Skype horror movie. It's a Skype slasher. A slasher. I'm, I'll work on that. It's, yeah. And it's really cleverly done. It, For the most part. You know, I, yeah. I felt the ending, the last couple of, uh, last 20 minutes or so, I, I felt kind of... It dragged a bit? Not dragged. It just got a little too silly. And I don't even know if the version I saw, because I saw this at South by Southwest, and supposedly they said at the time they were still tinkering with the ending and the movie in general. So we'll have to talk off air about how yours ended, your screening, and how mine ended. Yeah. And it could be different. I felt like... There's nothing scarier about what happens where this, like, essentially this mysterious slasher character is, like, picking off these people in a Skype call. I thought there's nothing scary about that and the silliness of that that's anywhere near as terrifying as, like, cyberbullying, which is what the first part of the movie is kind of about. Peer pressure, teenagers, cyberbullying, which I found really interesting and terrifying and disturbing, and that I thought the cheesiness of the end just didn't really do it for me in the same way yeah i i mean it's it's a kind of it's like a silly horror movie it's the kind of horror movie that i think i saw it with this like screening full of teenagers who are all like shrieking and laughing and having a great time it is it's like a pair it's from a blumhouse whatever it's it's along those like paranormal activity kind of lines which doors slam or like there's kind of like you know like it's frights are pretty like light you know yeah. it's not the kind of thing that would give you me nightmares ever it would not linger in my mind in any no, way no but it, i really it, it but the idea there sure is interesting oh, and scary. Absolutely. well and i think is like I, I feel like that's not a negative i don't mean that in a negative sense i right. had a great time watching this movie yeah it does 
it, in like its kind of goofy horror way, it makes things like the default Skype avatar scary. Yes. <laughs> and like And they do a very nice job with the with the mechanics of this computer screen. They don't right. cheat a lot. They don't. You know, the, going through the icons, typing things, the way things open and close. It's not like one of these movies where someone opens up their laptop and they go to like Google. Right. It's it Facebook. Is, it Facebook, involves Facebook. Google, a lot yes. like Skype, yeah. Skype, all the real programs, all the weird real websites, all the real icons. And when they're using things like even the tabs that were open on her computer screen was like forever 21 and all the different like that, yeah. a, that a teenage girl would have open on her on her on her Google and, right, Chrome. And like and Googling things like how people actually Google things. Like yes. It brings that up a lot. And there's humor from that as well as like creepiness. And I thought that it, it could could have gone very wrong. And it's it's made with a lot of care and, and smarts for the most part. So yeah. I'll give it that. I didn't love the ending. It sounds like you liked it a little more than I did, but it's a pretty well-made movie. It, it is. is. It I was, is. I was unexpectedly charmed by it. Yeah, I was unexpectedly surprised too. So that's a that's another one we would recommend. Unfriended. True story. Now we sounds like we would not recommend. I would not recommend it. It was. I, like, I would give it a mixed review, but I would not recommend it. So I maybe like I it liked was it. Like dumb in cold blood. Yeah, that's yeah, that's kind of what it is. Do you want to <laughs> summarize this one real quick? Yeah. So basically, it's 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 based on a memoir that you see getting written in the movie right. by Michael Finkel, who's played by Jonah Hill, and it's about a New York Times journalist who's disgraced, and then he figures out that this this guy who murdered his family allegedly, Christian Longo, who's uh, played by James Franco used his name, Michael Finkel, as an alias when he was on Stole the Stole his identity. Yeah. And so they start meeting, and uh, Christian Longo kind of tells him that he's innocent, that he didn't do it. And uh, Michael Finkel is, like, fascinated by him and kind of also is, like, sees this book that he can write about this and redemption, and it's going to bring him back. And so a lot of it is, like, the two of them talking in prison and then him trying to figure out if he trusts this guy or not. And I feel like a huge problem of this mo- with this movie for me is that James Franco has become the least sincere actor maybe of all time. <laughs> and I have liked him in things before, but he does, you know, his weird, like, I don't know what he's doing. It's like his air quotes acting. You I, know? I don't even know if I would give him that much credit. I mean, I just thought he was sleepwalking through this whole well, thing. I think he does, but uh, there's no part in this where you understand why anyone would ever believe what he's saying. Right. And that's, it's hard when you, even when you're like, Oh, you want to believe him. Cause it's a good story. This, you just, you're like, why would you believe him? I thought there was a lot of fascinating stuff in the ideas, in the in the themes that they're talking about, identity. And, you know, like, it's funny. Like, I know someone whose name is Chris Longo, like his real name. Yeah. And so just imagine having the name of, like, a, a, of a serial killer, right? Or or having your name stolen or sharing your name with someone who's, you know, like, and how that ties into your identity and how this character who's a writer has his whole identity essentially stripped away from him by making a dumb mistake and he loses all, everything he knows about himself and then he finds out someone else has actually taken his identity it's like it's a great premise and even the idea i could i i could almost defend the movie which i found very boring because it is a lot of them talking in prison it's like silence of the lambs if hannibal lecter was a boring dude <laughs> that's basically what it is yeah uh if if hannibal lecter was a boring dude and jodie foster was jonah hill that's that's the movie and for a while i thought you could almost argue in favor of that because the movie is kind of about the danger of sensationalism because that's what 
cost Michael Finkel his career is he sensationalizes, he fictionalizes this true story. And I thought the movie was supposed to be about the mundane and how that's kind of how these things go. And I thought that could be interesting. But then by the end of the movie, three or four th- scenes are just so obviously fictionalized, fabricated, sensationalized that it totally undercuts it. So it's not even that it's boring, although it is. It's almost not boring enough. It's like if you're going to be boring, you got to be totally boring. You can't go for the ending that they try to go for, which – there were two or three scenes where I'm just going, shaking my head. I was like, impossible. Yeah. And I feel like it also, it touches on this really, I think, very timely idea of when you look for the story you want, as opposed to actually hearing what's sure. there. Again, another which, interesting right, idea. Which is like kind of what he does. In It's what gets him in trouble. Absolutely. And it's what he clearly is doing when he gets involved in, with this guy. Yes. And yet it never really digs into that. It never, it's like this thing that I think a lot of, this movie raises a lot of themes explicitly. And then doesn't do anything with them. And then doesn't do anything with them. They just like literally talk about them and then they're like dropped. Yeah, the first like 15, 20 minutes, I was like, this is going, this has a lot of really juicy stuff to explore. And then it literally is them sitting there talking and not about those ideas either. It's just like talking about what happened to his family? Did he kill them? Did he not kill him? Going in circles. And, you know, Jonah Hill and James Franco, two guys I like a lot and have been good together in funny movies. I didn't think they generated a lot of dramatic chemistry at all. So, yeah, this one was a disappointment for me. So don't go see the movie with the actors you like that's about interesting right, that ideas. Smart. No. Don't. Go see the movie that's about the horror Skype call. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Yeah, we've and we, we 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 our credibility is just destroyed on this move on this episode. <laughs> no, we've really done a great right. job with it, up and down. I I'm proud of us. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to behind the eight ball. This is our segment where we wrap things up every episode with three new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations, and we also pick one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. We each pick one for one another. Allison, why don't you go first this time? All right. All right. Let's start with three new titles. Okay, first up, new to Netflix is Tracks, the 2013 Australian film directed by John Curran, starring Mia Wasikowska uh, as Robin Davidson, who in 1977 decided to basically walk across Australia, across the Australian desert, just her, her dog, and some camels. And uh, she was photographed by National Geographic, uh, a photographer who's played by Adam Driver, and became kind of famous off of it. And this film really... It, I mean, I know a lot of people really liked it. I have not seen it yet. It kind of got lost because of Wild. It um, it was the other movie about someone right. walking a lot, and <laughs> it didn't get the kind of push, and it didn't get the same kind of acclaim. But I'm definitely, I, I would like to check it out. I like Mia Wasikowska a lot, and people liked it. Um, also new to Netflix is Starry Eyes, which is a 2014 horror film written and directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmey. Hope I said that right. And uh, it's become like one of those movies that I've heard a lot about from the indie horror scene. A lot of people like this one, including Chuck Palahniuk, who was went really hard behind it on Twitter mm-hmm. when it, it was on Netflix. But it is one. It's about a topic I, I do tend to enjoy, which is horror Hollywood as a, a hellish place. And it stars Alex Esso as a, a would-be starlet who is working as a waitress and then gets this kind of audition for a role that has a bit of a deal with the devil feel to it um and that is now on netflix 
And finally, new to Amazon Prime is Tusk, Kevin Smith's horror movie that was supposed to rejuvenate him, you know, revitalize his career, but they didn't do very well. So, but he's still following, going ahead with his next Canadian film. Um, this one stars Justin Long and Michael Parks and Haley Joel Osment and Genesis Rodriguez. And I think the most interesting thing about this is, even though Kevin Smith has denied this, it is it works really well as a weird, uh, accidentally autobiographical thing in which a an obnoxious podcaster is horribly punished for his lack of uh empathy and his general dickishness i have a hard time with describing anything in this movie as working but i see what you're talking about you see about. what i'm talking about yeah. i i think if he really if that were in any way intentional or if he owned it in any way then it would be then I, and i still think red like that it's a movie that i think works more than it doesn't but he kevin smith has said it does not represent anything personal so this is what i have to say about tusk first part of the movie this is why podcasts are podcasts and not movies second part of the movie is like if you got high and tried to remake the human centipede third part of the movie johnny depp he has to be stopped he does have to be stopped he yeah he's this uncredited role in the movie and when he turned up it might be the i didn't recognize him at first and then i was annoyed when i did recognize him it might be the most dialogue spoken by an uncredited performer in history because he shows up and he does not stop talking for three and a half weeks i think is how long he's on screen (laughs) in that movie and they're like and it's all about trying to save their friend and he's just there's supposed to be some urgency there and he just keeps it's like i i I appreciate that you are trying to find authorial involvement here, and I think you have an interesting reading, but I, I, I would not recommend someone watch this movie, even to find that. I still think there's enough interesting in it to watch. I do uh, not. But I do not. anyway, we, that is on disagree. Amazon Prime. Very well. If you're t- if you're watching that one, you're taking your don't don't look at me. You're don't taking come your walrus life into yeah, your own hands. That's right. Don't come crawling to me when you do it. I I had nothing to do with that. That's all on Allison. How about two listener recommendations? All right. First up, we have one from David in Los Angeles who writes, "Hey Matt and Allison, after listening to your excellent Docs about artists episode, that's episode number seventy seven, I wanted to recommend another music documentary. It's called Dig, and it is Andy Timmerner's fantastic two thousand four exploration of J- Brian Jonestown." massacre frontman anton newcomb and his feud with rival band the dandy warhols his feud with his own band and his feud with himself newcomb is a man who thrives on conflict and chaos and you will cringe as you watch him sabotage every career opportunity and positive relationship he has over the course of the film but even more fascinating than the character study of newcomb is a study of the relationship he shares with dandy warhols frontman courtney taylor taylor the film is largely an ex- examination of feuding artists and their grass is always greener mentality. Taylor Taylor openly admits his envy of Newcomb's often insane and self-destructive artist artistic integrity. And while Newcomb is less forthright about his own jealousy, he clearly desires the mainstream success that Taylor Taylor enjoys. Each man wants what the other has, but both are fundamentally incapable of ever achieving it. Anyone who hasn't seen this film should do so immediately. It's available to rent now through iTunes for the very reasonable sum of $2.99. Uh, and I should also point out, it's also streaming now on Fandor. It just was recently add, added there. So if you're a Fandor member, you can find it there uh, for streaming. And uh, that's a great recommendation. That is a really yep. great doc. Yep. Um, and then we had two people write in to... Uh, 
the other episode, I recommended a show called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Yes. And I've had a few people write in to say that we, they, they... I can't remember the last time we got so much Twitter feedback, emails, <laughs> people saying, thank you for telling us about this show. People love this show. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to read t- uh, two of those. Um, I got this one from Jen in Sunnyvale. I wanted to say thanks for Allison's suggestion of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. After hearing your description, I decided to give it a try, but similarly had it on in the background while I worked. By the time season one ended, I was totally hooked, and I'm now watching my way through season two. I love that it doesn't take itself too seriously, and in a world of very dark and intense TV dramas, this show is a nice change. The Netflix algorithm thinks I am very serious, if I am to believe their suggestions. I don't mind that it's a little silly sometimes, and I skip over points like, why does this area in Melbourne only have one constable and one DI? I eagerly anticipate what can only be the inevitable show set in some back gambling rooms, some adventure, some sport, etc. Thanks again. I will definitely be recommending these to my mom. And it is the kind of show that you could see moms liking. And Jenny, another listener, also wrote, I'm loving, loving Miss Fisher. Thanks so much for the heads up on this show. So Good uh, job, Allison. Yes. Uh, I, I, everyone should watch Miss Fisher. I can't wait to hear all days. the recommendations we're going to get from people saying, like, thanks for recommending Tusk. That was great. <laughs> I never would have found it. It's so great. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't uh-huh. see that. I don't see that happening. All right, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? Uh, you gave me number nine, which is The Heart Machine. This is a directorial debut of Zachary Wygon, who actually used to write for me sometimes at IndieWire. Um, and it stars John Gallagher Jr. from The Newsroom and Caitlin Scheel from basically every other indie movie ever made. Um, and, and House of Cards, right? And House of Cards. Uh, the description is, when Cody begins to suspect that the Berlin woman he's been dating long distance might live a lot closer to home, he sets out to uncover the truth. And yeah, I'm always curious when someone I know makes a movie, certainly. And I really like John Gallagher Jr. He was and, awesome in Short Term 12. Yeah. And uh, and he's he was good in the newsroom, despite the newsroom's shortcomings. And I, I want to see more from him. I got to see I, that I, one, too. I'm going to add that to my, my list. Yeah. And I like the idea of the fact that you might be getting catfished by someone who lives just down the block from you and is claiming to live in Berlin. <laughs> it's intriguing. Um, all right, Matt, it's your turn. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. All right, so first up, the fascinating documentary actress from filmmaker and author Robert Green. It's about the actress Brandi Burr, who's best known for a recurring role on the TV series The Wire. Not long after The Wire ended, Brandi settled down to raise a couple of kids with her boyfriend. Several years later, with her relationship starting to fall apart, she tries to get her career back on track, and that is what the film documents. And I call it a documentary, but it's really it's a more complicated than that because it's all based on Brandy Burr's real life and her real feelings, but parts of it are, I guess, staged, maybe scripted, maybe influenced by the presence of the camera. No doubt Werner Herzog would say this is all in search of the ecstatic truth. And I think in the way that it depicts this woman's struggle with her career, torn between motherhood and her desire to keep her job and all that sort of thing, I think it it captures a little bit of that for sure. I, I think it's a very good movie. And well, it also is about she can't stop performing. Like the fact that the camera's True. there, yes. she can't help but play to it, which is really neat yes. to see. Yes, the idea of being an actress extends to being a subject in a documentary, perhaps as well. Yes, so that's a that's actress streaming now on Netflix. Uh, next up, I've got a documentary here. So it's I'm going kind of go with a little documentary theme with uh, these picks this week. Um, this is Stop Making Sense, which will be new on Fandor starting on April seventeenth. It's the classic concert film about the talking heads by Jonathan Demme. It's widely considered one of the best concert films ever made. It was shot in Los Angeles in 1983. 
Song highlights include Psycho Killer, Once in a Lifetime, Life During Wartime. Basically, every t- eventually every one of these songs is going to be the title of a film that the Talking Heads <laughs> had nothing to do with. Um, but the songs are great. And of course, David Byrne wears one of the most famous suits in movie history. It's great. It's Stop Making Sense. It is available on Fandor starting on April 17th. And finally, for all of my Arnold Schwarzenegger scholars out there, and there are a lot of us, Allison, there are so many of us, you can finally watch Arnold Schwarzenegger's ill-fated acting debut in 1969's Hercules in New York, a.k.a. Hercules Goes Bananas on Netflix, if you think his accent is thick now. Just wait until you hear him in this film. It was so bad that the original release had his voice dubbed by an American actor. Thankfully, the Netflix print has his original voice, so you can appreciate just how terrible it is <laughs> i am hercules i am tired zeus of the same old things and the same old places i want to go to new york anyway it's a riff on the hercules movie schwarzenegger loved as a kid and inspired him to become a bodybuilder that's no doubt why he took the part even though it was very clearly a shoddy production with very low uh budget and a, it's very poorly directed even a Schwarzenegger lover like myself would have to concede he's only really great in the movie, not not <laughs> not the greatest actor of all time. All right, fine, he's not very good in it. But it's an interesting footnote, and for those looking for a good, bad movie, this will get the job done. It is Hercules in New York streaming on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, our first uh, pick here is from Eli, who wrote in basically to yell at me, but we're going to use this as a listener recommendation <laughs> just because it, to, to correct the record here a little bit. Eli writes, great choice to review Three Days of the Condor, but I find it hard to believe that you included that intolerable brick of cheese, Capricorn One, and mm, left out geez. the and left out the best 70s thriller of all time after the conversation, which was my other recommendation, I believe, The Parallax View. Another good choice, although it's made in the early 80s, it does have that 70s vibe, is The Star Chamber with Michael Douglas. And as a guilty pleasure, I love Gene Hackman reviving Harry Call in Enemy of the State. Keep up the great podcast. And that was from Eli. And yeah, he calls it an intolerable brick of cheese. I would say it's a sublime brick of cheese, you know, like an aged Gouda or something like that. I really enjoyed Capricorn one. But I mean, having said that, the Parallax View is a is another great film from the 70s. A great conspiracy thriller is worth seeing. Yeah. We, you know, with these, we don't aim to be like, these are the best four movies Absolutely. of all time about this topic. Well, Just a lot of the time that... we deliberately avoid those movies because right. people have seen them. We're trying to give you something people haven't seen, like exactly. a Capricorn One, maybe. But yeah, if you haven't seen The Parallax View, that is a great film. Enemy of the State is a lot of fun. I haven't seen The Star Chamber. That's one. I haven't seen it either. That's the one I have to, I have to check out. So we're going to listen to Eli's recommendation and check that one out as well. All right, our next listener recommendation comes from Keith in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He says, I knew I should have set a calendar alert as soon as I finished The Noah on YouTube a few weeks ago because as soon as it was over, I knew who I had to tell about this wonderful, remarkable film. You guys, then one of the greatest mental lapses of my cinematic life happened, and before I knew it, a new SVU episode was downloading, and I knew a great disservice had been done to your cinema-loving audience because they would have to wait another two weeks to hear about this film. The Noah is a 1975 war satire starring Robert Strauss and directed by a man named Daniel Borla. 
And this film belongs just below Dr. Strangelove at every top 10 war films list, period. In a world of countless film blogs and of the Criterion Collection who release interesting and obscure films all the time, it is interestingly difficult to experience a true cinematic discovery, and then a film like The Noah comes along. It is about a man who has seemed to survive a nuclear holocaust and is stranded on an island in the Pacific. Alone on his island, he is forced to create his own society populated by an increasing number of imaginary characters. I kept waiting for this film to show its age or to finally tip its hand in revealing why it seemingly disappeared from the face of the cinematic world. And then the end credits were rolling. This film is gorgeously shot in black and white. It's mind-bogglingly sound designed and uses existing audio to create one of the most interesting sound collages of all time. This film also has an extremely interesting backstory as well. Details of how Borla and Strauss disagreed on almost everything and actually ceased communicating with each other directly makes the success of this film even more remarkable, which was available on FilmThreat.com, which seems to be inaccessible at the moment. The film is streaming on YouTube and is one of the most exciting film experiences of my life. I hope I have been persuasive enough and I enjoy the show. That was Keith in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And wow, that is a very, very strong recommendation for a film. I have to admit, I also had never heard about it. So I guess we'll have to check that one out, Allison. The Noah. It sounds very interesting. All right, one from your my list. You gave me number 99, and this time that is another 30 for 30 film. This one is called Broke. The Netflix description says, Director Billy Corbin examines the harsh realities behind the flashy careers of professional athletes, most of whom will go bankrupt after retiring. I'm a big 30 for 30 fan. I'm a big Billy Corbin fan, actually. He's directed other 30 for 30s. He did uh, Cocaine Cowboys, I believe. He's a good uh, documentarian. And it's a subject I've seen other films about. I've I've read, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated articles about. It's an interesting subject, this idea that these professional athletes, it happens more often than you expect. They make so much money, but their lifestyles, whatever it is, they... They spend all of their money, and then they're you know retired at 35 and bankrupt, and that's an interesting story. So that's why that one, I just recently added that one to my my list. Allison, it is time to discuss our options for our next Listener's Choice review. We have three very strong ones, I think, this time. I have the first one. It is from 1985. It is available on Netflix. It is directed by Paul Verhoeven, and it is called Flesh and Blood. It is Verhoeven's first English-language movie and his first American production, and it was made in this transitional phrase. He was sort of done in the Netherlands. He was moving to America, and his next movie after this was RoboCop, which really cemented his Hollywood career. This was made before that, and I've never seen it. You've never seen it? I've never seen it. And for that reason alone, as a big Paul Verhoeven fan, I'm extremely interested to see it. I'll read you the plot description. Tricked out of the spoils of war by a feudal lord, a mercenary, and his gang of ruffians, it actually says ruffians, retaliate by kidnapping the fiancé of a nobleman's son. And the film was not a huge success, but I'm, I'm, I, I've seen a lot of Verhoeven's early work. I've seen, I think I've seen every other movie he made in America. So this is really the one kind of uh, blind spot, I guess, for me, for Verhoeven. That I, and so I'm very curious to see it. Cinematography by Jan de Bont, mm. the great Jan de Bont. So this is one I'm looking forward to seeing. I think it's got Rutger Hauer, too. And he's really good <laughs> in Blind Fury, if I haven't made that clear yet. Could be, so basically, we do the Rutger Hauer uh, episode. We could do a Rutger Hauer episode, and I could recommend Blind Fury again. <laughs> okay. 
So that's Flesh and Blood. That's option one. It is available now on Netflix. Uh, option two is also available on Netflix, and it's one I mentioned earlier in the podcast. It is Starry Eyes, the horror film from Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmey, and is, you know, as I mentioned, one about an actress who ends up making this kind of Faustian bargain in in making a sac- making sacrifices to attempt to get this role. And, you know, I always like it when an indie horror film gets some attention. There's so many horror films and most of them kind of like just go through undetected in in the, the larger cinematic world. So when one breaks out and I hear from people that I really like who have enjoyed it, who are the people whose opinions I respect, I always want to check it out. And also, it would be such a good excuse to do a podcast about horrible hollywood uh, definitely there's a, a lot of those topic there is yeah there's plenty and of that to discuss could be a lot of fun yeah all right option number three is a film called son of a gun directed by julius avery and starring brenton thwaites ewan mcgregor and from ex machina alicia vikander we just mentioned her uh, and her fine performance there a few minutes ago this film will be available on amazon prime starting on april 22nd if my information is correct and here is the plot description of this one when 19-year-old petty thief J.R. runs afoul of a vicious prison gang, I wonder if there's any ruffians, he's offered protection by notorious inmate Brendan Lynch, but there's a price. After J.R. is released, he must break Lynch out of jail and help pull off a brazen gold heist. Not just any gold heist, Allison, a brazen gold heist. The best kind. The best kind of gold heist is a brazen one. And uh, another movie that kind of fell through the cracks for us. We heard uh, some good things about it. Ewan McGregor, good cast, Alicia Vikander. Uh, we just didn't catch up with it, so we we want to. That's basically it. It's, there's no, no more complication than that. I guess we could do... Uh, have we done heist movies before? We've done 80-something episodes now, so it yeah. wouldn't shock me if we have. We, should have really, we, done... we really need to keep records on yeah. this. <laughs> have we done brazen gold heists before, though, as a I, theme? I think at least twice. Okay, so that would be out, too. But we could find something. Maybe Ewan McGregor. That yeah. would be a good one. He's a good actor. He's... Fine fellow. Fine yes. fellow. So there's, there's some definitely some possibilities there for themes as well. So that's option number three, Son of a Gun, and that'll be streaming on Amazon Prime starting on... April 22nd. All right. Well, which of these intriguing movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can always send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. And this time, your vote must be received by Monday, April 20th at noon. And don't forget to vote. Last time, it was very close. Yes. Um, After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account. That is twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, April 28th. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys and from Allison, who's constantly trolling streaming sites to bring you all the latest new additions. Don't forget also to leave us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars on iTunes. It helps us reach new listeners, and we really appreciate it. For Film Spotting SVU, I am the alienatingly geeky Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.